Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love Ireland and baseball, you're one of us. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. On the show today, our very own Jim Ward will be talking about a great audio clip from Chicago White Sox bench coach Joe McEwing. Later on, we'll learn about some Irish-American baseball history with Pat O'Keefe. Pat is the sports director for News 12 in New York and a radio host for Major League Baseball on ESPN Radio. Right now, I want to welcome our guest, author Christopher Klein. He wrote the book, When the Irish Invaded Canada. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you because I recently read the book and I absolutely loved it. First of all, before we get into anything else, what gave you the idea to delve into this topic? So the book that I wrote before this one was a biography of John L. Sullivan, who was a uh, Irish-American boxer from the 1880s, the heavyweight champion for 10 years, really the first sports superhero. Happened to also be a really dedicated baseball crank, as they were called back then, and and played semi-pro baseball. Uh, but I was doing research on one of his ring opponents from the early 1880s, and it mentioned that this boxer had been a veteran of the invasion of Canada. And I sort of did a double take, not knowing what the heck we were talking about here, and just did some digging around and found this this crazy story that I really hadn't known anything about, that there was an army of Irish-American veterans from the Civil War who fought for both the Union and Confederacy that attacked Canada uh, five times between 1866 and 1871 and what were called the Fenian Raids. Uh, and the more I dug into it, it was just this crazy story about, you know, not just military battles, but spies and uh, shipwrecks and Irish revolutionaries. So it uh, it was this this story that really captivated me. And it was one that's been told a few times from the Canadian perspective, but not really from the viewpoint of the Irish Americans who were the ones doing the uh, attacking of Canada. So, uh, so, so that was sort of the approach that I wanted to take with the story. And it really does tie in some big names throughout American and Irish history. I mean, You end up having Eamon de Valera coming over to the United States and talking about these particular raids. They get into a lot of trouble with uh, Andrew Johnson and with Ulysses S. Grant, who both seem to show up in this book. As far as Irish history, it's pretty self-explanatory to why it's important. But what would you say about how this book and this time fits in with just general American history. So I think it really gives us some window into what the status of Irish Americans were, let's say in the 20 years after many of them poured into the country after the potato crop fails in Ireland, and you have the great hunger and you have one and a half million Irish who are coming in from between 1845 and 1860. Nowadays, Obviously, I, you know, Irish Americans are so much a part of American culture and have become a part of the American identity, where you have on St. Patrick's Day, you know, everyone wants to be Irish. But I think it's a reminder that 
that really wasn't the case for the first few decades when the Irish showed up and they had a really difficult time assimilating into American culture. And these, these Fenians who carry out these attacks, some of them had been in the country for 20 or 30 years. Thomas William Sweeney, who's the general who uh, draws up the war plan for the first big attack on Canada, had served in the Union Army for 20 years, had lost an arm in the Mexican-American War, served in the Civil War. Even with all that, he still then leaves his job with the U.S. Army to then become Secretary of War with the Fenian Brotherhood to lead an attack. And that's because a lot of these men who were involved in the attack still viewed themselves as Irish first, American second. You know, they were in exile from their homeland. They wanted to do whatever they could to free Ireland. And they never forgot it, even after coming to the the United States, even after a lot of them fought in the Civil War. So I think it just shows that they weren't necessarily a part of that American melting pot uh, in the first few decades that, that they were here. So I think that's that's just maybe something to give us insight to the immigration debates that we have today, just sort of see how the history of Irish Americans and how it took them a great deal of time to really become a part of the fabric of America. And it might not seem logical to somebody today sitting and just hearing this story about the Irish invading Canada And they might be like, okay, everything you're saying makes sense. They weren't really ingratiated into the United States yet. They didn't feel, but why are they invading Canada? And there actually was a great reason for this. So if you could explain that a little bit. Right. So let's go back to the time period. So in the 1860s uh, and 1866, when they launched this first invasion, uh, Canada is not a country independent country that it is today, it is like Ireland itself. It's a possession of the British Empire. It's ruled by Great Britain. It is a a British colony. The Union Jack is flying over Canada, much as it is in England. So for the Fenians who were carrying out these attacks, they thought it would be a natural target. And a lot of them, when they formed this association, the Fenian Brotherhood in 1858, the original plan is to raise arms and raise money in the United States, and then launched another revolution attempt in Ireland. They had tried one in 1848, was the most recent attempt. So that was the original plan. But as the years progressed, there was a whole faction of Fenians who thought that this idea was crazy. You know, why are we trying to launch an invasion all the way over in Ireland? You know, we don't have a navy. Not only do we not have a navy, we only have a boat. So how is this going to happen? How are we going to get all these weapons there? So the idea starts to morph to let's strike Great Britain at its closest point to where we are, and that's Canada. We can just – and a lot of these men came from the cities uh, in, in the northeast, midwest. So, you know, all right, we can jump on a train, get there in one or two days, and we could be right into invading the the British Empire. So – there's a small portion of them think that, yeah, once we get over there, we're going to get the support of all the Irish Americans. We'll get the support of all the Irish in Canada. It will, you know, we'll be able to overrun all of Canada and more or less hold it hostage until Britain gives it independence. So those were definitely the most optimistic of the Fenians. But what they're really trying to accomplish here is to 
probably their best case scenario is that this is in the wake of the Civil War when Great Britain was not very popular uh, among people in the Union because it had given its tacit support to the Confederacy. And at the end of the war, the United States wants Great Britain to pay millions of dollars in reparations from all the damage that Confederate warships that were built in Britain did to Union shipping. The United States is, is looking to put pressure on Great Britain, and the Fenians are sort of a good pawn for them at this point. So the best case scenario here is that um, the Fenians think that what they can do is invade Canada with the whole idea of manifest destiny still uh, in, in the American ethos. Canada is sort of the next place for the country to expand. They think, all right, let's help the United States gain Canada, and they can add there's a plan in Congress where they're going to add four new states into the into the United States from Canada. We'll help them do that, and in return, the United States will then, as part of any sort of peace settlement, require that Great Britain free Ireland. So that's probably the most realistic scenario that they are playing on at, at this time in terms of how they're going to get to their end game. And obviously not going to spoil the ending of the book, but it did end up having a positive effect, just not in the way that they had intended. <laughs> yes. So certainly the biggest unintended consequence here is that as a result of their attacks, they do, there is a part of the British Empire that does gain some semblance of independence, but it's not Ireland, it's Canada. So when these, the biggest of their attacks occurs in 1866. And at this time, there is this growing movement inside Canada that uh, for more self-government. And once these attacks happen, these invaders coming across the southern border uh, without any def real defense uh, from the British, uh, British forces, it really lends uh, fuel to this self-government movement inside Canada. So that a year after the big attack in June of 1866, on July 1st, 1867, it's uh, what's celebrated today as Canada Day. It's more or less uh, Canadian semi-independence day where they have their own parliament uh, established in Ottawa. And the reason it's in Ottawa and not in a place like Toronto or Montreal is because the Fenians have just showed how close those cities are to potential attack. So Ottawa, at least, was uh, which was just some sleepy lumber town, but it was far enough away from the border that they thought it might be safe from any attack from the United uh, States or further attack from the uh, Fenians uh, comes into effect on July 1st, 1867. So you really have the birth of Canada uh, coming, and it's a, a lot to do with the Fenian raids. And that is why it's a subject that's a lot better known in Canada than it is uh, in the United States, just because it is one of these milestones onto the uh, establishment of the Dominion of Canada. That was author Christopher Klein talking about his newest book, When the Irish Invaded Canada. With his extensive background in American history, Chris will join us on a future episode to discuss some of his findings on baseball history as a member of Sabre. We will also talk about his hometown Boston Red Sox and some other possible reasons for their 86-year title drought that have nothing to do with curses. 
I'm Rick Becker, turning things over to my colleague, Jim Ward. Thanks, Rick. This may be the Irish baseball podcast, but we often talk about other sports. Most athletes utilize cross-training as a way to build muscles and stay healthy. Chicago White Sox bench coach Joe McCune was no different when he was growing up in baseball. He also took to the hardwood as a basketball player and had one big role model from the world of basketball. You mentioned playing basketball professionally before. Yeah. Well, so t- tell me about your basketball career and, and uh, what team and what player um, were your favorites? Uh, Dr. J growing up, you know, growing up in Philly, uh, Dr. J and, and, you know, just practicing his moves on, on, on the blacktop, you know, it, it, it allowed your imagination to go. And, uh, that's what I appreciated the most. It wasn't just like, it wasn't cut and dry. He, his movements, the way he played the game allowed your imagery, your imagination to go to a different place. And, uh, and I appreciated that and, and it allowed you to be an athlete and not just like, here it is, this is the way you do it, here, set your feet here. And uh, I think that's how I molded, you know, my basketball game and, 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 my, and on the baseball field because, you know, you, you want to do things fundamentally sound, but you also want your instincts and your imagery to, to come about. But basketball is my favorite sport. Really? My favorite sport. Yeah. Did you play any other sports growing up? And, and how did playing basketball or any other sports help you as a baseball player? Oh, I, I mean, I would encourage it for every young child because, you know, there's so many things on a basketball court that help you on a baseball field. Your, your first step quickness, your agility. And uh, now, you know, everybody's saying, okay, just focus on this sport, focus on one sport. And it's, you know, we're doing a harm to a lot of individuals because, you know, they don't allow their mind to grow and uh, in, in, different, in different arenas that help them in every sport and, and life down the road. That was Chicago White Sox bench coach Joe McEwen from an interview with Irish American Baseball Society members and questions from our founder, John Fitzgerald. It was kind of interesting to hear Joe talk about how different skills from basketball crossover and how he encourages kids to go out and play more than one sport or have more than one activity. And I can't agree with him more. Uh, we see kids today that can play three, two, three, four sports. Uh, some kids are just so gifted. You give them anything with a ball, a stick or whatever, and they seem to excel. And, and, and plus not only do you pick up little things from baseball uh, to play well in basketball to football, to soccer, but you get those great relationships and learning skills that you learn from your coaches, uh, different ways of approaching things. So I couldn't agree more with what Joe was saying there. Our members can get more of that interview with Joe McEwen at irishbaseball.org. I'm Jim Moore, sending it back to Rick Becker on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thank you for that, Jim. As somebody who played both baseball and basketball in high school, I also appreciate cross-training for young athletes. Playing multiple sports at a young age can really prevent overwork on certain muscles and joints, allowing for a longer career. I'm Rick Becker. It's time to take a trip back into some Irish-American baseball history on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Hi, my name is Pat O'Keefe. I'm the sports director for News 12 in New York and a studio host for Major League Baseball on ESPN Radio. Today, I'm going to tell you about an Irish baseball legend named Big Ed Delahanty. 
Ed Delahanty was born in 1867 in Cleveland, Ohio. His parents, Bridget and James, were Irish immigrants who arrived in America two years before Ed was born. Delahanty and his four brothers, Frank, Jim, Joe, and Tom, all played in the major leagues, making them the largest group of siblings to play in the big leagues. But Big Ed was by far the most successful of the Delahanties. He made his mark as a left fielder for the Philadelphia Phillies from 1891 to 1901. Big Ed was one of the top hitters of his day. He batted over 403 times and he led the league in home runs twice. In 1896, he became the second player to hit four home runs in a game. In fact, he is the only player in baseball history to have both a four-homer game and a four-double game. Delahanty's game was well-rounded. Besides being one of the top sluggers of his era, he was revered for his ability to place base hits between outfielders who played him deep. He batted 346 for his career with more than 2,500 hits and more than 1,400 runs batted in. Unfortunately, personal and financial troubles led to Delahanty's untimely death at the age of 35. But his legend lives on. Ed Delahanty was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1945. For more information on Big Ed Delahanty and other Irish baseball legends, visit irishbaseball.org. That was Pat O'Keefe, sports director for News 12 in New York and studio host for Major League Baseball on ESPN. For Jim Ward, who talked about a great audio clip from Chicago White Sox bench coach Joe McEwing, and for our guest Christopher Klein, author of the book When the Irish Invaded Canada, I'm Rick Becker on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.